episode 18 right now. This is Dope Nostalgia. I'm Naomi. I had an amazing week with interviews last week. Chatted to so many people that I was just flabbergasted that I could even get the opportunity to speak with. So we've got a lot of podcast content coming up for the next couple months. And since we're a weekly show, I will be able to spin it out for a while. So starting with this one, actually, this interview happened back in April. I spoke with Speck all the way from uh, Dubai. Um, He's a Canadian hip hop musician who became a member of the group we're focused on today, the Dream Warriors. Um, He wasn't an original member. He became one later when the band decided to expand a little bit. And then they had a total of four members when Speck joined the group. He'll tell you all about his story. He came from Montreal and made it all the way to Dubai, where he is now currently doing publishing, getting artists from the United Arab Emirates off the ground and making a big name for himself out there. We had a wonderful chat and we also reminisced about all the days back when King Lou, Capital Q and DJ Love and Speck did all kinds of shows together as the Dream Warriors. We'll play a few of their songs. You'll remember them. You will. I promise you. But before we get to the interview, I did a poll last week after our episode with Prozac. I wanted to ask you guys off our Twitter poll, what was your favorite Prozac song? Now, I only gave you three options and they weren't the most necessarily most popular Prozac songs. They were just three that I randomly chose. Um, So the winner with here's the thing. You guys didn't really vote very much. I have four votes. Okay, total. 25% 25% of the vote went to www.nevergetoveryou. No one voted for It's Not Me, It's You. That means the winner was 75% of the vote sucks to be you. Because probably it was one of the more popular ones. Although in the comments, I had a good buddy there from the soundtrack podcast, okay? Now, now Christopher says, it's obviously Amabala Sheree. I don't even know if I say that right. I think that's how I say it in the song. Something like that, right? What does that word even mean? If you know, tell me. (laughs) He said, obviously, that's the correct answer. And it wasn't even in the poll. Well, we'll do a new poll this week, of course, for the Dream Warriors episode. I'm going to give you three Dream Warriors songs. And here they are. You're going to pick your favorite of these three. We're going to start things off with the big, 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 big hit. My definition of a boombastic jazz style. My definition of a boombastic jazz style. Here we go. Are you ready for one other? Dream Warriors noise is new discover. Once again with a new blend. So telephone a friend. To the prime is optimist. Yeah, so that's choice number one. Number two, it's going to be their song, Ludi. My mother wanted me to make another song. Something brand new so she could dance to, too. So this was dedicated to no other than my mother. 
Yeah, I love that tune. The third one we're going to tell you guys to vote for is called Wash Your Face in My Sink. You wash your face in my sink. Simplicity with synchronicity makes a mind melt revealed impossible like a walk through a mind That's it, folks. That's our poll today. We're gonna start it up. It's Dream Warriors, the top three tunes. Which one is your favorite? You can go to our Twitter poll at Nostalgia Dope. Nostalgia Dope is our Twitter handle. Find us there and vote away so that by next week we can share with you the results of that poll. And for now, we're going to get into the episode. This is Dream Warriors. Wikipedia moment. recognize this tune right here what you're listening to is Quincy Jones's song Soul Bassa Nova the song that the Dream Warriors sampled to create their biggest hit my definition of a boombastic jazz style straight from their Wikipedia the Dream Warriors were a Canadian hip-hop duo from Toronto Ontario comprising King Lou and Capital Q described as a pair of deft intelligent rappers by John Bush of all music they were major contributors to the jazz rap movement of the early 1990s. Their 1991 debut album, And Now the Legacy Begins, was cited by Bush as one of the finest alternative hip-hop records of the golden era. Before the release of their second album, Subliminal Simulation, in 1994, the duo became a group with the addition of rapper Speck and DJ Love. In 1996, they released a third album, The Master Plan, before the two new members of the group left a year later. Though their subsequent releases did not garner similar commercial success as their debut, the duo released a well-received Greatest Hits album in 1999. And their final album, The Legacy Continues, was put out in 2002. Now, King Lou and Capital Q formed Dream Warriors in 1988, and they came from the Jane and Finch and Willowdale neighborhoods of Toronto. In 1988, King Lou made his recording debut, appearing on a single by Mishimi and L.A. Love called Victory is Calling. And then they signed to 4th and B-Way, probably Broadway, Island Records, and released their jazz-influenced debut album, And Now the Legacy Begins, in 1991. The album was critically acclaimed and sold very well in Canada, the United Kingdom, and across Europe before becoming an underground hit in the United States. The album spawned the hit singles, Wash Your Face in My Sink, this one, the my definition of a boombastic jazz style, and Ludi. The first two singles hit the top 20 in the UK while in their own country, Canada. The album went gold and collected a Juno Award. The song My Definition featured a sample of Soul Bossa Nova by Quincy Jones, which is also the theme song for the Canadian game show Definition. This wicked, wicked track you're listening to right now. They recorded a song called Man Smart, Woman Smarter for Buffy the Vampire Slayer soundtrack in 1992. And ooh, we're losing the tune. That's okay. For their follow-up Subliminal Simulation in 1994. Second album, Dream Warriors added rapper Speck and DJ Love. We're going to be talking to Speck right now. All the way from Dubai. Nice. That's a place I've yeah. always, want, always wanted to visit there. Uh, you should come down. You should come down. Well, I mean, when 
when it's you know, travel permitting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it seems yeah. like a really beautiful place. Have you been there for uh, many years now? Um, I've had a, a bit of a, a long trek around the world uh, after the Dream Warriors, but I, um, I moved here at the end of 2006. And then I left in 2015 to move to New York. Mm-hmm. And then I just moved back in the summer of 2019. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yes, I've, I mean, it feels like home. You know, I've been here uh-huh. a, a long time, but now it's, you know, on this, this, this sort of trip is, is, you know, less than a year. I uh, I'm doing a show about the dream warriors and that's why I reached out to you. But also um, once we chatted and you said you were going to come on and I looked up your career and you've done a lot, you know, you've got, you've done a lot of great things. So I'd love to touch on some of those, um, what you're up to now, but sure. to, to start off, I'm going to go right to the beginning and ask you how and when did you become a part of dream warriors? Cause you were very young at the time, correct? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I first met them when I was 14. And um, what had happened was uh, they were, you know, before they had the crossover success of my definition, um, you know, they were putting out, they had been putting out music quietly for a little while um, in the sort of Canadian underground mm-hmm. scene. You know, they dropped a couple of singles. First was Wash Your Face in My Sink, but then we really fell in love with them because of uh, tracks like Voyage Through the Multiverse and Follow Me Not and a lot of the stuff. The album was amazing. You know, we were big fans in, in, I had a little rap group in high school and we were all sort of big fans of the group. Mm. And so what had happened was we had been reading about them, you know, and at the time it was so rare to read about Canadian hip hop groups. So um, we sort of obsessed uh, about the fact that there was somebody doing it, you know, uh, that was, you know, on an international scale. And so I had this sort of magazine of like probably the, one of their early, early interviews uh, in a Canadian publication. And by the time the album dropped and uh, the, they were having a lot of pop success with, uh, with Definition, um, they came to Montreal, they, they were doing a show, but they were doing an autograph session in the afternoon at the, uh, the downtown HMV in Montreal. Mm. So we skipped school and we went down to this thing. And when we got there, it was like, there was like, you know, it was packed out, right? There was like a thousand kids in this packed in this, you know, it was, it was mayhem, you know? Right. And of course what everybody was doing was they were, they were buying the album and getting in the queue to get their autograph you know and uh we didn't have any money and uh but we had this old magazine right and so i sort of stood in the queue for this uh for the autograph and when i got to the front um i i had uh i i basically uh um you know they, they looked at the magazine right and and uh they were like you know, Q looked at me like, oh, wow, you know, we're, this is like a really hardcore fan. This guy's like known about us for like a long time, you know, so he was like, yeah. you know, so so he was just like asking me questions, you know, and, and I, I told him like, oh, you know, we tried to open up for you guys, but, you know, we're underage and they wouldn't let us into the club, you know. Mm. So Louis said, uh, well, you know, if you come down at Soundcheck tonight, like we'll sneak you into the gig. Nice. Um, and so I was like, 
okay, you know, and um, so I went home and I begged my parents to go to my, it was actually the first concert I ever went to. And, uh, and I ended up going down to the gig. And then of course we met them at Soundcheck and, um, and we hung out, you know, and the whole time I was telling them, uh, I kept on talking about my group and how we're like the illest in Montreal and this, that, and the other. And then they asked me to freestyle and I did. And then they were like, yo, you know, like, you know, we're into producing, you know, why don't you like give us your number? And if you ever come to Toronto, like we'll produce your demos. And so that started a process where for the next three, four years, um, I would just go to Toronto whenever I could and they produced the demos and I started sort of, so that was my, my, my first time in the studio. You know, there's a, there's a process to, uh, you know, it's one thing to be a rapper, you know, in high school, it's another thing to sort of get used to the studio environment and how to use your voice and how to record and the process of getting demos done. And so that was sort of a huge learning curve from about 14 to 17. And then by the time um, I got to about 17, 18, um, they were recording their next album and uh, the band I was in high school with broke up. And uh, by then we had recorded a couple of songs where I was like a featured artist on a couple of things. And then they just, you know, one track became three, became four. And then they just said, you know, do you want to join the group for the second record? You know, and so that's, that's where it started. Wow. What did that feel like? That would be exciting. Yeah, it was surreal. <laughs> I mean, like, I, to be honest with you, I, by then I had sort of had a, I had sort of, you know, um, thought that I was going to have a solo career, you know? Mm. And so I immediately, although I was completely flattered, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it sort of ticked all the boxes. I, I, I think I said no for the first one or two times, you know, and then the more we started talking about it, it sort of felt natural. And, um, so yeah, I went for it, you know, and, you know, it was the right decision for me, for sure. You know, it was, it was, uh, it was a, uh, it was a great decision, uh, for me to make, but it took a little bit of convincing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think it's good too, when you're um, learning the ropes that you had all those people in your life at the same time to uh, support you in your, you know, in your journey and your learning. So. Yeah. Like love DJ love, who was their DJ. Um, I mean, he, I, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how many times, like I would go and I would spend weeks upon weeks sleeping on, you know, his floor in the basement, you know, and, and, you know, we, we really, I mean, he really became a mentor to me and, uh, you know, like these guys really shaped me, you know, um, mm -hmm. as, as an artist, you know, sort of coming up and learning the ropes. And it was really exciting at the time because also Dream Warriors were really the biggest thing in hip hop in Canada at the time. And so, you know, I was a kid hanging out with a bunch of rappers that I looked up to, you know, and we'd go to shows and we, you know, we, we rolled, you know, deep everywhere we went, you know, and it was, <laughs> it was a, it was an amazing experience for a kid. Needless to say, I wasn't in high school very much. I skipped school. I mean, I don't even know how I graduated high school because I was never there. <laughs> uh, it, it was much more enticing to be hanging out in Toronto with those guys. Um, what part, of, you are Canadian, right? What part of Canada are you from? I, I was born and raised in Montreal. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so it's not yeah. too, not too far from Toronto. I'm all the way in Edmonton. 
okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 No, we love Edmonton. Edmonton was always uh, the best. The best show of the tour was always was often Edmonton. I think there's something about this city where people just they show wild, mad appreciation for things and yeah, like their no, hockey I've team, had, everything. <laughs> yeah, we we rocked. Like we loved playing Edmonton. Edmonton was a lot of fun. Um, so how long were you guys now you did, you did one or two albums with them? I did two albums two? with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Subliminal then, simulation. simulation. Yeah. And the master plan. Right. What was your and, favorite? Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, what was your favorite track from each of those albums, whether it was an album track or a single? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, on Subliminal, my favorite tracks were not necessarily, well, on Subliminal, my favorite track is probably Project Thing, which I'm not even on, uh, but it's produced by Premiere, and I just love that song. So two albums, and then you you went on the road with them quite a bit. Did you just travel through Canada, or did you guys get to do some stuff in the U.S. and internationally as well? Yeah, no, we toured. Actually, we were bigger in Europe than we were in Canada, you know, which is sort of funny, you know. But uh, we pretty- toured the U.K. and Europe a fair bit. Um, 
Um, and we, 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 we played the States as well. Um, but we spent most of our time, I think most of our big things were, were in the UK and Europe. I feel like there's been a lot of artists that um, go to either Europe or Japan or somewhere, somewhere other than North America to uh, establish a fan base in the beginning. There's a, they're very much well, the more history, receptive. The history of Dream Warriors is really interesting because, you know, the, the real history of it, and this is before I joined the group, but around the time I was first hanging out with them was uh, actually even before that, right? What happened was um, Louis used to be um, part of Mishimi's crew, right? So Louis was sort of mm. Mishimi's uh, hype man. You know, she was, she, she, you know, he'd be on, whenever she'd be playing shows, he was, he was the other dude on stage, right? Oh, yeah. And, um, and then Dream Wars was sort of his, you know, concoction, right? Mm -hmm. And what he did, and, and, and Louis was always sort of a different type of dude, right? Like he was into Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, he was just not your typical sort of dude in the hood, you know? And, and so you know, he came up with a, a lot of what Dream Wars ended up becoming. Hmm. And, um, and at the time it was really weird. You know, it was considered really weird. I mean, we're talking about like 88, right? Hmm. And they ended up signing a deal. Uh, Mishi was signed to First Priority Records in, in the US in New York, which had MC Light and um, uh, Milk and a bunch of classic uh, hip hop. And so she got signed to First Priority. And I think it was First Priority that also signed Dream Warriors off the back of the them getting to know, uh, uh, off the back of Ivan managing them and the rest of it, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so what happened was he, uh, they got signed and then they made this record, which, uh, which ended up being the record that was released, right? And, uh, and, and they ended up uh, just sitting on it, right? Because they didn't know what to do with it because they thought it was so weird, right? Because it was like jazz samples and it was like, you know, philosophical and it just wasn't what was going on in hip hop in 88. Yeah. And then De La Soul dropped Three Feet High and Rising, right? Uh, and then people started comparing, you know, De La to Dream Warriors and then the label was like, well, now we can't put this out because this is too similar to Dela, right? <laughs> and so the guys in Dreamers were like, yo, but we we done hand this record for we've been sitting on this record for like a year, right? So mm -hmm. um, so they got out, they got let go out of that deal. They asked to be released from the deal. They got out of the deal, uh, is my understanding. And then Ivan, uh, our manager, ended up going to London and playing it for somebody who ran the PR department at Island Records, mm. uh, who uh, was an old friend. And he took it to Radio One, and um, I think it might've been Giles Peterson, but somebody in the UK just played it out. Uh, the demo of My Definition just played it out. Uh -huh. And uh, was it My Definition? No, I'm sorry, the demo of Wash Your Face in My Sink, he played out. And it immediately started getting requested. Um, and so before they left, they showed up to the airport with a contract to sign up. And so it happened completely by accident. And by then, um, we had already shopped it um, 
to every label in Canada who were just like, no, we don't really get this, you know? And so they couldn't get signed in Canada. They got let go out of their deal in the States. And then suddenly in the UK, somebody just played it and it, it, it just sort of started blowing up on radio. So, so they got the deal out of the UK. They dropped Wash Your Face in My Sink. It was a top 10 record. Um, And then the follow-up was my definition and, you know, and then the album followed from that. So the UK was always, uh, showing us a lot of love uh, because you know we were always you know left of center of whatever else was going on at the time and the UK is pretty good at embracing that sort of music. Um, I would imagine like there's been a lot of um, music that's come out of the UK that was a little bit more of an alternative flavor to it um, so I can see why they would definitely embrace like a jazz rap style as something yeah. new and exciting. I mean when I think about that Jamiroquai comes to mind. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, Jamiroquai's first single came out on Acid Jazz, the label Acid Jazz, right? And Mm. that was all part of a scene that started developing in the UK that was the sort of mixture of, you know, jazz hip-hop, jazz rap. uh, um, You know, that whole Acid Jazz scene was, uh, there was a group called Galliano, you know, there was a lot of really cool shit coming out of that scene that really Dream Warriors were, were, uh, were a big part of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in that era, um, irrespective of the fact that they, they, they weren't, they, they were from Canada, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we, we, we were, you know, they, they hit a zeitgeist, you know, they hit a, a moment in time when others were playing with the same influences and it just sort of clicked. We'll be back faster than you can say, hustle power. Analog Brewing. Winner of three awards at the 2020 Alberta Beer Awards is a proud sponsor of the Dope Nostalgia Podcast. Analog Brewing is now offering delivery within the city of Edmonton with no delivery fee on orders over $40. Go to analogbrewing.ca slash shop. That's www.analogbrewing.ca forward slash shop and place your order today. When placing an order, you could also pay it forward and take part in their Nurse a Pint program and prepay for a pint for a nurse. Mention this podcast in the order comments so they know we sent you. Analog Brewing, taking beer to the next level. Get your sea shined up, grab a stick of juicy fruit. The taste is gonna move ya. Take a sniff. I feel like uh, this has probably been said before, but when you're comparing the style or genre of rap music um, between like the Ameri- America and Canada, Canadian rap music has more of a story to tell. I feel like it's more, uh, it's more socially conscious. Well, at its best, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that I, 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 I look at it from both views, you know, like uh, we, in some ways we can look back with, you know, you know, through a rose tinted lens, you know, and, 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 and say that on the other hand, there was a lot of garbage out there that was just, really uh 
derivative of whatever was going on in America, you know, mm. but that is probably the consequence of any new and evolving music scene. You know, you see it in every sort of scene. We were obviously so influenced by hip hop in America because hip hop came from, you know, America. Mm-hmm. Um, but there definitely were unique voices within that. And, you know, I think, you know, even when you're on an individual level as an artist, when you first really become an artist, you you start by imitating, you know, your heroes. And then at some point you find your own voice. Yeah. Um, I think that that's probably true of the Canadian rap scene as a whole. You know, there, 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 there was a lot of, you know, in the early 90s, every rap group from Toronto sounded like Mob Deep, you know, uh, <laughs> or a lot of them did, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because we all worshipped Mob Deep, you know. Um, but, but there definitely were people with unique voices and, you know, they started to rise to the top and suddenly a sort of distinctly um, Canadian hip hop sound started to develop, you know, uh, not, not any one sound, but, you know, you start to hear unique voices that sort of reflected the Canadian experience in, in a way that, that uh, some of the deriv- derivative stuff didn't, you know, it wasn't just all, mm-hmm. you know, street gangster rap. It was like, you know, you had people like chaos coming out where, you know, you get like, you really hear the Canadian in chaos, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think you do with Cardinal as well, you know, like there's a lot of voices that started to come out that, 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 that could only be Canadian, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I yeah. think that's a good thing, you know. Yeah, and it's like you said, like a unique, their own unique perspective from a from a Canadian standpoint, from the way yeah. they live their lives, completely different yeah. than what someone who like grew up in with gangster violence in yeah. the streets in the streets somewhere would it would be a totally different scene. So it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and you know, to be fair, I mean, playing the other card, I mean, look, you know. Lou and Q grew up in Jane and Finch, you know, so they grew up around some real, you know, uh, I mean, when I first moved to Toronto, that's, I, I moved to Jane and Finch with them, you know, so, yeah. um, so it's not like we weren't exposed to that stuff. Um, mm. uh, we lived that stuff too, but we just chose not to, um, that wasn't what we wanted to create in our music, you know, and um, certainly not what they wanted to create in their music, you know, when they first started out, you know, Um, but but they definitely, you know, I think that was always the challenge. It was like, you know, Dream Wars really came from about as hood as you can get, you know, in Toronto. Um, But, but the perception was we were this sort of uh, commercially successful group, you know, which seemed at odds at the time with, with, uh, with that reality. But, but I think that's what made it really interesting to me, you know? Yeah, I don't know much about Toronto. I've only been there once. But um, most of the things I've learned, I've learned definitely through the music that I've listened to or what I've seen through like growing up on much music. That's right. how you knew about the staple of, uh, you know, where Queen Street was on that corner. You'd always be uh, learning about it, about Toronto, I found that yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Queen Street is sort of like, is like the hipster, you know, sort of district, you know, where... Uh, the tastemakers are, you know, mm. and the people who love Dream Wars, there was a, definitely a Queen Street crowd that absolutely, like, really, we really fit into that crowd in terms of audience, mm-hmm. but Jane and Finch is the complete other, like, 
you know, it's, it's, it's the complete other side, you know? So that, that, I think that that was the interesting dynamic that we had, you know, that, that we sort of came from real, uh, underground hip hop roots, you know, but, but we sort of crossed over into this other, uh, crowd, you know? Um, uh, yeah. What were some of the best experiences you took from the time with the band and do you still keep in touch with them? Yeah, I still talk. I saw them. I saw them. Uh, they did a thing about a couple of years ago for the 150th anniversary of Canada. Awesome. Uh, uh, I was I was in the audience while they played a, a gig with Mishi and a bunch of other Canadian urban luminaries. Um, yeah, and I still talk to. I still I, st I still stay in touch uh, with them generally. Um, best experiences. I think it was just the whole experience, you know? I mean, it's sort yeah. of mad to be like, you know, 17, 18, coming straight out of high school and then, you know, touring the world, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, so that was an incredible experience and it really shaped me for the better or worse, you know, into who I am today, you know? Um, those sort of experiences really informed um, how I would, sort of view the world and you know i mm -hmm. uh i'm still in the music business so it's sort of like you know those are, you know for a long time I, I i thought that um you know all i knew was you know being an artist you know and 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 living that life you know mm -hmm. um and then i realized after a while that actually if you do other things in the music business um that's sort of the best breeding ground for experience you know to to go through uh, the ups and downs, be on the road, make records, you know, have all of the, you know, uh, positive and negative experiences, sort of it really helps to shape you as a well-rounded music executive later on in life, if, if that's what you end up doing, you know? Yeah, and that's the thing about the music business is there's so many facets of it, so you can never really uh, get bored. You can just keep learning more and growing yeah. with it. Um, yeah. Now, Tell me about US3. Is that how, is it US3 or is it pronounced US3? US3. US3? US3? Okay. Yeah. So US3 were, um, you know, they were a British, it was actually two guys started it and they were both sort of DJs and producers. And what they did was they sampled a bunch of, they, they were signed to Blue Note Records, which is a legendary sort of jazz label. Mm -hmm. And Blue Note basically gave them the keys to their vaults to sort of say, you can sample anything in the Blue Note uh, catalog, you know, and we'll clear it. And so they went to town and sampled a whole bunch of classic and obscure Blue Note records, put them to hip hop beats and, um, and then got a bunch of, you know, uh, sort of guest features on it, whether it was rappers or dance hall guys. Mm -hmm. And they put out this album and the first single Cantaloupe in 90, I'm going to say, what year was it? Um, it must have been 92, 93. I feel like um, you're correct. I feel it would have been like maybe 93, even 94. Yeah. yeah. Um, they put out Cantaloupe and it became a massive, massive hit. Um, you know, I can't remember all of the stats, but I remember it, mm -hmm. you know, being a top 10 record in the U.S. It, it sold millions of records around the world. And, um, you know, they were sort of massive, you know, at that time. 
and they sort of went on record and sort of said that they had um, they were big Dream Warriors fans. You know, that sort of inspired them to sort of make develop their sound. You know, and wow. so by the end of uh, around the time I was leaving the Dream Warriors after the master plan, I really wanted to get out to the UK. Um, and so at the time, what I was doing was I was sampling a lot of Indian music and putting beats behind it. And this is sort of pre Timbaland and Missy Elliott, Get Your Freak On and all of that. And at that time, sampling a bunch of Indian music and putting beats behind it was sort of considered very weird, you know, but I've always been a bit of a contrarian, you know, mm -hmm. and um, that period, 96, 97, was a period where uh, Puffy had sort of taken over, Bad Boy had taken over the sort of sound. And so the big thing to do at that time was to sample classic uh, funk records and, 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 you know, sort of disco records. And, you know, that was sort of the sound. Um, so I went the other way and I started sampling a lot of Indian music and 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 people thought it was I played it to a few labels and stuff and they were like you know why are you doing this world music like what is this you know and so mm. they didn't get it until uh it became a thing and now of course you know it's it's not a big deal you know but at that time it, it was sort of revolutionary I guess you were ahead and of so, the curve <laughs> yeah you know and um and so there were a lot of Indian references in what I was doing and at the time, I had met a, um, a concert promoter who had done some Dream Warriors gigs in Montreal. And I had a coffee with him and we were having a chat. And he said to me, I told him what I was doing. And he was like, um, and, and he was like, you know, there's only, I told him I, I felt like the UK was sort of where I needed to be, but I, I need to figure out how to get back out there, you know? And he was like, I only have two numbers of artists in the UK. And one of them was uh, Jeff Wilkinson from Us Three, mm -hmm. and the other one was Grant Daddy G from Massive Attack. So he mm -hmm. gave me both their numbers, and I called them up both, right, one after the other, and I told them who I was, and they both knew the Dream Warriors, and so we developed like a relationship over the phone where I would send them demos and this, that, and the other. And so at some point, um, so so. Grant from Massive sort of said to me, you know, what you're doing, like, there's a whole scene of like second generation Asian kids who are messing with Indian influences, but they're putting it behind hip hop and drum and bass. And there's like a whole scene out here. Uh, so you, you got to come out here, right? And so that sort of convinced me that I needed to get out there. And then a couple weeks later, um, after talking to, to Jeff at Us3, he told me that they had booked like a big European tour for their second album, but they had um, some sort of issue with the rapper who was on the record and they needed to replace him for this big European tour they were doing. And did I want to fill in? And, uh, and then, so we tour Europe, but in the off time, uh, when we weren't playing gigs or we weren't touring, we'd be based in London. And this would go on for, you know, six months. So that was sort of my ticket to London. And I took it. And that's how I got to London in 97. I moved out there uh, in April of 97. Uh, and I immediately started, you know, rehearsing and then touring with them uh, across Europe. We toured 
um, Italy with Jamiroquai at the sort of peak of Virtual Insanity and the Traveling Without Moving album, where you're playing like, you know, 30,000 people on that tour a night. You know, it was a really wow. surreal experience. Uh, played a lot of the big festivals, all of that. Um, we were, you know, sort of main stage at all the big festivals and stuff. So that was like a super dope experience. And it was amazing because a lot of the bands that I was playing that we were touring with or that we were playing gigs with at festivals, a lot of them were based in London as well. So, you know, I got to become friends with a lot of these groups, you know, the musicians in those groups. So then when I got back to London, I would call up Stuart Zender from Jamiroquai and be like, yo, you want to record like some demos, you know? So I'd go to his house and we'd write and record a bunch of demos together. Then I would do that with different musicians or artists that I met on the road. And, uh, I started to develop my own demos and then I got signed to uh, a publishing deal and then eventually a record deal off the back of those demos for as a solo artist. And then in 2001, you released that solo album, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Is that the correct year? 2001? Yeah, yeah that is actually, we, we, 2001 was when uh, it came out in the UK and then we put the same album out in 2003 in Canada and toured, toured it in Canada. Um, I, I just listened to it uh, earlier this afternoon. I quite like it. Sweet. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm a hippie, but I got a tattoo. I'm a rasta, but I got short hair. I'm a businessman, but I love to smoke joint. I'm a t-shirt who never gets to the point like a racer. Who never drives too fast. I need a pacemaker that's built to last like bohemians. That's all I am. I might change you for Well, I don't read news, don't read words. And it tells me what I just heard. I just move with the grace of God. Try not to feel how it leaves me scarred. I'm not into the road that broke. Finding out about the gun smoke. I got my own little plan to get me heard onto another platform against the norm. And I remember what I tell them in the dorm. I'm a hippie, but I got a tattoo. I'm a Rasta, but I got short hair. I'm a businessman, but I love to smoke joint. I'm a teacher who never gets to the point like a racer who never drives too fast. I need a pacemaker that's built to last like bohemians. That's all I am. I might change you. visions every day to pat me on the back and just say everything's gonna be okay okay no need to stress no need to worry i won't think about the times that were i'll just hope that the all the are you happy with the album yourself and the how did the creation come about yeah like i feel like it was a necessary thing for me so like you know ever the contrarian then by then uh, by the time I got to London and I really started, you know, I got to work with uh, Nitin Sani on his album Beyond Skin, which was a sort of a big, uh, a big record in that Asian underground, what they were calling the Asian underground scene. Hmm. And once I did that, um, there was like a whole scene of all kinds of people doing, you know, once I got to London and I saw that like it was a thing, you know, it was, it was in a way it was a fad for a period of time where, where there was a lot of second generation Indian kids 
mixing the, the you know there were entire labels that were dedicated to just sort of the asian underground you know mm. um so when i got to london then i stopped wanting to do that because it felt like i was doing what everybody else is doing you know so then at that point when i got to london i became really inspired by um well i started listening to a lot of classic british singer songwriters you know and artists and mm -hmm. stuff that would be normal to normal to the average person i i was only just discovering david bowie and uh you know and joni mitchell and um you know a lot of folk music and and guitar music from the 60s and 70s and um and so you know then it started you know i used to listen to say a joni mitchell record and it, it it would sort of pull at your heartstrings, you know, and it would um, elicit an emotional reaction out of you that whilst I loved hip hop, like from the age of 14 to 19, all I listened to was rap music, right? Yeah. And, um, and suddenly there was like this, these, this, this emotional palette that I would get from guitar music that I didn't really feel in hip hop. You know, uh, hip hop was good to get you hyped. It was good to get you angry, socially conscious. Mm -hmm. You know, but um, but but it didn't sort of pull at your heartstrings in, in quite the same way, and um, with a few exceptions, you know. But 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 largely, you know, that sort of, and I felt that that was because of um, just the ability to use instrumentation and chord changes and like learning how you know, chords work, you know, as yeah. opposed to just sampling a two bar loop, you know? And so then my mission became, you know, learning how to play a little bit of guitar and learning how to, trying to sort of, you know, could I, could I take the aesthetic of the Beatles, but put it, um, but, but express it in the only way that I know how, which is through, through hip hop and through rap. And that became the mission for me, you know? And so for three years, I just, you know, got co-writing with different collaborators and sort of trying to see if I could develop a sound that was sort of musically rich and don't sweat the small stuff was sort of off the back of that and also I became you know just a fan of pop music you know and pop sort of you know I, I thought of you know when I was in hip-hop I thought of pop as a dirty word you know right. and 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 when I was in London there was some incredible pop music as defined by people like the Beatles that, you know, was incredibly cool, I thought, you know? And so, so, you know, the, the mission for me became how do I sort of create pop music, you know, beautiful melodies and, and, and chord changes and instrumentation without sort of losing the hip hop. And, uh, and I thought it would be a unique, different sort of thing. And I, I, I think it was, you know, I mean, I think that it was a little bit ahead of the curve as well, because, you know, people started doing it. Um, now that it's not that uncommon in hip hop, you know? Well, now, yeah. And there was a, there's a time I feel like in the early nineties where songs started to become about like your, your, your top 40 rap song, for instance, would be like a big chorus with somebody singing it singing yeah. the singing the pop hook and then it would go back to the rap for the verses kind of exactly. thing yeah exactly totally totally you know so my thing was like can i do that but without it being like a big uh 
a big classic pop record that you're, you know, you're sort of, you're, you're remaking and can you do it with like an acoustic guitar and no beat, you know, or, um, you know, playing with that. And actually Chaos was thinking right along the same lines while he was in Canada. You know, I remember he came to play London, uh, his first gig in London with uh, India Irie and he had the first copy of his album, which was not yet released. And I had the first copy of my album, which is not yet released. And we sort of were, you know, were in his hotel room and we both threw our albums at each other. Like, oh my God, <laughs> we, like we've both been, you know, so, so yeah, you know, it definitely cut from a similar cloth. Um, but that was sort of my goal was to try and do that. And so in the context of that, yeah, I, I still love that record. I still listen to it every once in a while. Uh, I wouldn't remake that record today in quite the same way, you know, but, mm -hmm. but, uh, but, but it was, um, it was an important record for me, you know? Yeah, no, and it's important for your growth. And that's another reason, like, there's no point in doing the same thing again, the exact same way. It's yeah. always, always good yeah. to do something and move in a new direction. Um, how would you compare now? since you've been in Dubai and you've been international for a while, um, are you still involved with the Canadian hip hop scene a bit? And how would you compare it, uh, the scene then to what it is now? Um, wow. It's, it's almost, it's like apples to oranges. Yeah. Uh, now to compare it, you know, I um, think Canadian homegrown music's grown really international over the last 10 plus years. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I tell people all the time, you know, there was a time in 94 when we were traveling around the world and doing interviews about, you know, our new album or whatever it was, uh, people didn't know we were Canadian, you know, mm -hmm. and then they would find out that we're Canadian because we would talk about it. And it, it was almost, it was almost like you'd get laughed out of the room a little bit, you know, because they didn't think they thought of Canada as not really an, they, they didn't think of Toronto as an urban center. They thought, when they thought about Canadian music, mm -hmm. they thought of Celine Dion and Neil Young. Yeah. And so they thought it was sort of funny that there was a rap group from Canada or that there was a rap scene in Canada. And we spent a lot of time uh, talking about the, the, the hip hop scene and, you know, the people that were developing out of Canada and we would bring them on tour um, you know, we made tours less profitable because we were bringing along a lot of local talent to tour with us, you know, so that people could see Canadian hip hop and not just, you know, um, we, 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 we definitely flew that flag, you know, um, yeah. um, strong at that time, but it was, it, it took 20 years before Drake came along and, um, sort of fulfilled the promise um, that 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 you know the, the promise of that of, of, of that scene you know um, and um, you know that's a great thing you know I mean you, you, the guys absolutely uh, established something for Toronto and for Canadian hip-hop that 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 we we and others were really pushing for for a long time so it's amazing to see the arc of that story to go from you know no radio station wanting to play you uh canadian hip-hop not being a thing um no labels wanting to sign you 
really very little infrastructure, very little support for local urban music for the best part of that 20 years. Um, and, uh, and now Toronto is arguably the hottest city in the world from an A&R perspective to sign urban music out of. Um, and every A&R in New York and LA or in Toronto, every chance they can get to sign the next Drake or the next Belly or the next Weekend. And, That's incredible. Uh, I had no idea yeah. it, was, it was to that extent. I think it's amazing. Yeah, no, it is. It's incredible. It's incredible to see how far it's gone. And that's sort of why I am, you know, out here, because when you hang out in Beirut or Mumbai or Abu Dhabi, now when I see emerging talent in these markets, it feels like Toronto in 94, mm -hmm. you know, and um, there's a lot of raw talent, but there's not necessarily the peripheral talent around the raw talent, you know, mm -hmm. we, 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 we had great raw talent, but we didn't necessarily have producers who had made global hits. We didn't necessarily have mix engineers who had made rec mixed records that had traveled the world. We didn't necessarily have great managers. You know, your brother-in-law was always your manager, something like that, you know, and that's yeah. kind of what it feels like in the Middle East or in Asia right now or parts of Africa. And so, um, so you know, that vibrancy is, I personally find really invigorating and exciting and um, you know that, that's kind of why I'm out here you know because I, 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 I love that development stage of the process mm -hmm. because there will be some drakes that come out of the Middle East or Africa or or India and uh, and it's already starting to happen really you know so um, so yeah it's a beautiful thing that segues yeah. into uh, where I was going to take this with the uh, the fact that you've basically established a major music publishing company in Dubai now. Um, what was it about Dubai that made you put down roots there to do it in the Middle East? Well, the company is, the company is actually based in Abu Dhabi, but Abu Dhabi is the capital of the UAE. Dubai is, mm -hmm. I live in Dubai, you know, but, um, okay. but Dubai and Abu Dhabi are about 45 minutes apart. Um, um, but the UAE is made up of seven emirates, which are sort of, city-sized states yeah. and the biggest one is Abu Dhabi and then the second biggest one is Dubai um, but yeah I what happened was I got you know I was really an artist and a songwriter until about the age of 30 and um, around the time I turned 30 I got offered my first job in publishing while I was living in London and um, you know I did this job for about 18 months and I learned a hell of a lot about the inner workings of the music business. Um, you know, I was always the guy in the band who was the most interested on how the business worked. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that I had um, more basic knowledge than the average artist. Um, I certainly went through stints where I was managing myself. And so, you know, you, 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 you pick it up. Um, but, um, but I learned a lot on the job, you know, uh, a lot about the inner workings of the copyright industry and how, and publishing, which is, you know, the most complicated aspect mm -hmm. of the music business. So once I understood how sort of royalty flow worked and I was just naturally just curious as to what was going on in markets like the Middle East and Asia, um, I, I had friends in India at the time. And I 
I would turn on the TV in London and I would, you would see Bollywood movies all the time. And Bollywood movies are like, you know, 40% of Bollywood movies are like music, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I started asking myself, well, who's the guy doing the music? Because whoever's doing the music in these movies that are three hours long is, has got to be like silly paid, right? And then I would ask around and I found that that wasn't the case. And then I started asking myself, well, why isn't that the case, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so I convinced my bosses that I should, they should let me go to India to explore that market and what we could be doing in that market. And at that time, no publishers were, none of the major publishers were in India. It was very much, uh, you know, segregated out from the rest of the global industry. It, they had Bollywood as an industry that they were exporting out, but the Western industry hadn't penetrated India in that sort of way, and certainly not the publishing industry. And so, um, so I went out to India and I met some of the guys who are, you know, now considered the architects of the music publishing industry in India. And it was 2005, so it was like super early. And I met a couple of guys that totally inspired me. And um, I was fascinated, you know, um, and I asked a lot of questions and I got to understand how it was working and why it was broken for songwriters over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the way back to London, uh, my flight had a connection in Dubai. So, you know, I'd never been to Dubai before, so I took a couple of days off uh, and I started asking myself, well, who's doing what those guys are doing, you know, out here? And so then I started meeting some of the local labels and I realized that they too had very little understanding of what music publishing rights were. Um, At that time, it was 2004, 2005-ish, and the Copyright Act in the UAE was enacted in 2002. So it was super early days. Um, Nobody really understood anything and nobody was really doing anything, you know, and I I felt like that was sort of like my light bulb moment where I was like, you know what, I should move out here and set up the first publisher in the country. Um, How often do you get an opportunity to move somewhere and become the first person to create an industry, you know? Yeah. Um, And so, um, and at that time in my life, I was like, I, you know, I was 30 and from, you know, from a teenager to the age of 30, I was an artist and artists, uh, don't make a weekly or a monthly paycheck, right? Like, I mean, I, I wasn't, I wasn't a slave to the system. You know what I mean? I wasn't scared of falling on my face because my entire life I was falling on my face as an artist. Um, so, you know, it wasn't like I was like, uh, I didn't have a balling chain in terms of a nine to five that I was scared to lose, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so, you know, I was just married at the time and my wife was game for an adventure. So we packed our bags and, and we moved to Dubai, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, we set up and launched the business. And then in 2011, uh, the Abu Dhabi government had created, when well, 2008, the Abu Dhabi government had created uh, an organization called 2454, which is um, basically the Abu Dhabi Media Zone Authority. And they were, as a country, you know, the country itself is, is pretty young. You know, it was founded in 72, I think it is. Wow. Um, and, and so it was a very young country um, that discovered oil. 
and was spending a lot of money trying to build infrastructure very quickly uh, because they knew that at some point the oil money will run out and they wanted to ensure that there were multiple industries, tourism, that they had a self-sufficient economy that wasn't dependent on oil revenues. So they were, they were hyper-focused on um, building out all kinds of different industries and the media and the content industry was one of those things. So I just happened to be there at the right time where, you know, they were making investments in TV and broadcasting and in media, but you know, there, there is no, there is no such thing as any form of media that's interesting without music. You know, you can't play video games without music. You can't watch a movie without music. You can't watch <laughs> TV without music. Um, you know, if you ever watch, you know, any movie, you know, the most exciting, you know, Star Wars, you know, if you take out the score in Star Wars, you know, it's like watching paint dry, you know, it's terrible, you know? Yeah. You um, never realize so what a huge part of it, it is. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's integral, it's integral to every form of media. And so, you know, they, they wanted to do something in music, but they weren't sure what to do. And I came at it at the perfect time where, you know, I had an idea and, um, you know, this is one of those things where I say, you know, like for a long time when I was doing business, I felt like, you know, like an imposter, right? Cause, cause I was an artist really, you know, but you forget that the fact that you're an artist actually helps you to fight for these causes with some degree of credibility that you wouldn't have if you were just some guy with a degree. Yeah. You're not um, just the business guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you know, so I, uh, I set up my company, Pop Arabia, in partnership with, uh, with 2454, and we launched it, and then we started representing a lot of big global catalogs and then licensing music in the Middle East. Oh, wow. Well, and now, how, how has the company grown to this point now? How are things going with it? You have a lot of artists involved, and we lots of careers are taking artists. up? Yeah, like our, our first... Um, our first few years was really focused on um, was really focused on on representing big global catalogs in the Middle East and North Africa. So, you know, it was very difficult for people to license music into films or advertising campaigns because when you get a request from Beirut or from uh, Dubai, you know, getting an answer back, they didn't understand the um, even the, the, the semantics of the business, you know? And so they would send requests to London or New York and they would never get a response, you know? And so we ended up being in effect, a local agent for a lot of these companies and then being able to middle these deals and, and license music. And so suddenly once the publisher starts seeing for the first time that they were getting revenue from the Middle East mm -hmm. and that somebody was, uh, helping to police it as well. So when people were using music, but not licensing it, which was the norm at the time, mm. um, you know, that, that somebody was going in and protecting their rights and ensuring that songwriters were getting paid, we started to build a reputation as sort of the good guys in the Middle East, you know? So that was sort of how we built the business up. And then in 2015, I got offered a job uh, at Reservoir in New York, which is a New York based music publisher and uh, Reservoir were um, at that time in the US were, were, were um, 
historically in, in the US, they were primarily like acquiring catalogs, but they didn't necessarily have much of a front facing um, creative output. You know, they wanted to sort of pivot into signing and developing artists and A&R um, and, you know, grow their creative infrastructure and develop a creative strategy in the US. And um, so they, so they offered me this job to sort of move to New York and to sort of help lead creator strategy, um, you know, to, to, to figure that out, you know, and um, it was an opportunity of a lifetime and it was a really exciting company um, that was, you know, sort of well-resourced and had an ambitious plan. And, um, and I really liked the people um, that, you know, worked at the company. And in fact, the, the head of their UK office was the woman that signed me to my first publishing deal after I left the Dream Warriors at Warner Chapel. She was now running uh, Reservoir's UK office. So it was sort of like coming back to family in a way, you know, um, through uh, her, her name was Annette Barrett. Um, and so, yeah, so I moved to New York. I'd never lived in New York before. So that was a incredible opportunity and exciting for a kid who grew up on hip hop, you know? Yeah. And, um, and, you know, and Reservoir is also very strong in hip hop, you know, we have Faith Newman, who's a legendary A&R in New York, you know, she discovered and signed Nas, mm. uh, you know, it was my colleague, you know, and so we, you know, I got to work really closely with Faith, who's amazing and awesome. And, you know, it was just, it was really a dream come true, you know, great people um, and a great opportunity to sort of build out a company. And then, you know, after, you know, five years of doing that, you know, we, I think, successfully sort of transitioned to being known as a front-facing creative force uh, in the U.S. We now have, you know, um, you know, like, I think last year we had 19 Grammy nominations, you know, we've had roundabout Incredible. that. Yeah. Many Grammy nominations every year. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got a lot of great people signed to the company, you know, Young Thug, J.I.D., Joey Badass, Static Selecta, um, Offset and Takeoff from Migos. Uh, you know, we've got a, a sort of who's who of Just Blaze, you know, of, of, of amazing hip hop producers and artists, uh, as well as pop writers like Ali Tamposi and James Fauntleroy, you know, people who have written massive, massive global pop hits. Um, so, you know, I felt, you know, in some ways, you know, when I got there, we were just in New York, you know, by the time I left, we had offices, we have offices in LA and Nashville with some amazing creative um, staff in each of those markets, the best in the business really. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I felt like this was a good time for me to pivot back to uh, my first love, which was international, and um, and come back to the Middle East and focus on growing out these markets. Now that Spotify and streaming has entered a lot of these markets, um, it's uh, it's it's now possible to make money in these markets. You know, which wasn't the case when it was a CD business where there was ninety percent of piracy in a lot of these markets. Right. So. Um, so it felt like, you know, somebody is going to do well out of a 420 million person market in the Middle East. And, um, you know, I started the first publishing company out here, so I should go back and, and focus on that. And, 
reservoir were very supportive and they've partnered with me now. Um, and so I moved back over the summertime with them as a partner and, and we're now signing artists uh, in the Middle East that we're trying to take out around Con the world. Congratulations. That sounds like it's extremely fulfilling to, to have that happen. So yeah, yeah. good on yeah, you. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's cool. It's exciting. I, I'm, I'm very motivated by, um, you know, the world is changing, you know, and, mm -hmm. and streaming has really changed uh, the way we listen to music, but it's also changed our consumption behaviors, you know? Yeah. And um, when it was a CD business, music was being pushed to us by being front racked at record shops. And that was sort of what we saw and therefore it led to what we bought. Mm -hmm. When you have the world's catalog from anywhere in the world at your fingertips on your phone, um, there's some interesting, you know, uh, consequences to that, which is, you know, we end up actually looking for stuff um, that, uh, that we wouldn't have otherwise found in when it was a traditional bricks and mortar CD business. Exactly. And, and, and you know, that means that, you know, what we found in new markets is that people just sort of tend to, the focus on local music is a lot more, uh, prevalent, you know, and so, you, you know, in India, they're mostly listening to Indian music and in China, they're mostly listening to Chinese music, you know, and so the music industry is about to go through a boom uh, where, you know, um, you know, a lot of sort of official estimates are that it's going to, it's going to double or triple in size uh, from its biggest year ever, you know, uh, at the peak of the CD revolution. Um, so we're going to have like a much bigger music industry, but it's not going to be because um, Beyonce is three times bigger. It's going to be because music from other parts of the world are going to start to become relevant uh, in, in, in the developed markets. Mm -hmm. And that, that is going to sort of undergird a, um, uh, uh, a need to sort of sign and develop these acts and 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 give them um, give them access to some of the peripheral talent to get to 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 make the music global, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, so it's exciting, you know. And and uh, it's all again, it's pioneering stuff. It's it's all like new world stuff, you know. We don't know what how it's going to shape out exactly, but but. Um, you know, that's sort of part of the fun of doing pioneering work, you know? No kidding. Um, I think it's just really exciting that I can be able to just sit here and decide today I want to listen to an artist out of, uh, you know, Abu Dhabi, and I can. At, totally. You know, um, there's part of me that misses the whole uh, CD or album buying experience, but it's more of a nostalgic, like this is, it's, this is a better way to do things. The only concern I have is just making sure that everyone gets paid for their work and gets paid. Yeah. Because streaming, streamings, the model needs work. Yeah, like I, I, you know, I, yes, I agree. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big uh, proponent that, of, of the view that, that songwriters in particular need to get paid more uh, mm -hmm. than is the norm right now in terms of, streaming and I think now is the time to make to, to fight for those arguments yeah. um, this argument has been going on for a few years and my 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 view previously was we need 
you know, um, like streaming doesn't really work until you have scale, you know? Yeah. Um, it doesn't work on the basis of being really big in one or even five countries or 10 countries, you know? Mm -hmm. You sort of need it to really be global in, in 50, 60, 70, 80 markets, right? Mm -hmm. um, in order for there to be enough scale to justify the economic model, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of these streaming services, um, I mean, Apple, of course, they sell physical products, you know, the, the, the streaming service is an accompaniment to, to the iPad or the iPhone or the computer. And so there's less of a, um, you know, sort of financial pressure on them uh, uh, in that sense, you know, yeah. for somebody like Spotify or Deezer, you know, some of these other companies where, you know, their only offering is really just the streaming service. Mm -hmm. um, it really becomes about scale. You know, they have to get out into like, you know, the whole world really. Um, and only when they get out into the whole world and the whole world is paying, is there enough money to come in for them to be profitable, you know? Bingo. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so they're still, you know, they're, they're now only just getting into that space, I think, you know? I mean, they only entered India and the Middle East a year ago, you know? Um, so it's still early days. Uh, I, I, I believe they're doing well, you know, I think over the next two or three years as they start to scale up is exactly when it makes sense to start fighting for our rights uh, appropriately, you know, uh, I mean, there's never, a, you know, there's never a bad time to fight for our rights, but I was always of the view that we, we need to sort of scale the model out before uh, before we get deep into that fight because um because it's one of those things where uh um you know it, it's hard to get more of the pie if the, if the platform itself isn't profitable you know yeah um so um but you know the, there's been a lot of great work by the nmpa the national music publishers association and others really fighting for the cause of songwriters in the US um, and in other markets. And it's been a, you know, a back and forth fight between digital platforms and, 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 and songwriters. And I'm always on the side of the songwriter uh, for sure. What's um, a, a recent artist that you've worked with um, that you could recommend to, for everyone to check out? Ah, uh, hmm. Well, I you can think JID. about that. <laughs> Sorry. I love JID. JID is a incredible hip hop artist um, that if you don't know who he is, he's, he's just amazing. Uh, nice. I think he's going to be a big, big star. Um, great records. He signed to J. Cole's label, um, Dreamville. Um, was nominated for Grammy this year um, through the Dreamville uh, uh uh, joint project and um, revenge, I think. Um, and so, uh, JID is definitely incredible. Another artist that I'm a huge fan of is uh, Toria. Her name is Nikki Wells, but her uh, her project is, you know, her her stage name is Toria T U R Y A. Um, mm. She put out an album called Oceans. Uh, a couple of years ago, which is a beautiful 
singer-songwriter, melancholic record, but just gorgeous uh, music. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, those, those, are, those are two, two, two artists that you could definitely look up and, and, and check out. I've, there's another artist who's making music right now named Nikki B, who's a Jamaican artist, who's got some music coming out soon. Um, and on the Pop Arabia side of things, we've just signed uh, a couple of artists. One is, her name is Chris, X-R-I-S-S. Mm -hmm. And she just dropped a song called Save Me, which is a club record, um, which is doing really well on Spotify and it's just got playlisted in the UK on Kiss FM. And uh, Lebanese, soulful singer, gospel, house, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a cool big crossover record, I think. Wow. Um, and then there's a, there's a Palestinian artist named Bashar Murad, M-U-R-A-D, um, and, uh, we've just signed him at Pop Arabia. We're working on a record for him right now. Expect that, you know, we should have something out over the summer. I'm really excited about him too. Good. I, that's one of the things I like doing this podcast is obviously very focused on the past, but I like that it also gives us an opportunity to see what's new and coming up too. So Absolutely. yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, what is your creative outlet now? Um, that you know you're doing so much of the business work um i'm sorry i've read something about the voodoo kids yeah so like voodoo kids is uh so when i did these the spec solo record um i you know i went through a process where i wrote uh and recorded with a whole bunch of different collaborators right but when i met um this one guy brian rose uh we just sort of clicked and we ended up doing the whole album together, right? With him um, co-writing, either co-writing or co-producing the record with me. And ever since then, we've, we're just like, you know, he's one of my closest friends in the world and, and we sort of have always just stayed in touch, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, a couple of years ago, when I was in New York, he came out to visit me and stayed with me for a little while. And we, you know, we started mucking around on some ideas and uh just thought why don't we you know we've got a whole bunch of old sort of spec demos that we never really finished why don't we you know sort of go back in the lab and try to finish some of these songs out and write some new songs and just sort of do it and sort of being in the studio with brian is is my my go-to happy place you know I'll, i'll do that to the day i die if i can you know um, cool. And so, so we went back in the studio, started releasing some music, um, and then for a period of time, we, with the best of intentions, we said, okay, we're going to put out a song a month, you know. And then, of course, we did that for 16 months straight. And then, by the time we got to the 16th month, neither of us had the bandwidth to continue <laughs> doing it every month. Um, but, but we're still, you know, we're still sending each other ideas, and and you know, uh, at least once a year, we try to get together you know, write and record a bunch of stuff and then start to leak it out. So Voodoo Kids was sort of uh, really an extension of the spec record uh, because it's the same collaborators It's me and Brian and we've been working with a singer named Alex, who's a close friend of ours who worked on some of the spec stuff with us as well. Um, and we just called it Voodoo Kids because it felt like it was, you know, uh, apropos, you know, something new. Yeah. And um, 
and yeah, you know, so some songs are just Alex singing and me doing a small sort of, you know, I might not even be rapping. I might just be writing, you know, or producing, you know, um, and, um, but, you know, there's a lot of spec rap stuff in there as well. Um, I, I think it's better than the spec record, you know, the, we, we put out a, you know, for 16 months we put out stuff and then the first 12 tracks that we put out, we packaged into like an album format called one. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's out there on, on the streaming services, Voodoo Kids. Um, some, you know, I, I think some really good songwriting there and I'm, I'm, I'm very sort of proud of the stuff that we've done out there. And um, in the meantime, I've got my own home studio as well. And so since I've been back in Dubai, which is a little further out and we've been in quarantine, I've been mm. writing and recording bits and pieces and producing stuff at home. And we'll see if that stuff sees the light of day. Now is the best time to be creative. <laughs> really, yeah. really. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. I mean, I've been writing and recording a whole bunch um, during this period, you know, so now mm. I just have to figure out how and when to put it out. Okay, I'm gonna wrap things up with one silly question for you uh, to take us back in the day. Um, mm -hmm. Can you think of a food or a clothing item or a toy, something that makes you nostalgic for the 90s? Something that was really cool that was special to you? That's one that you uh, kind of have to think about for a minute though, I guess, eh? <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I, the first thing that comes to mind is we did this, um, uh, this is going to sound really uh, egocentric, but um, we we had this comic, this Dream Warriors comic book, right? Oh, cool. um, In the 90s, right? So when we put out uh, Subliminal Simulation, um, when you would go into the store and buy any, I think any album, not just the Dream Warriors record, they would give you a copy of this Dream Warriors comic book that we got done. Um, which I still have a few copies of, you know, and I get people randomly tagging me and emailing me pictures of, you know, them still have going through their boxes and finding this old comic book, you know, so that feels quintessentially 90s to me because of the association it has with being the first major release I had, you know, so mm -hmm. um, that would be the first thing that comes to mind. Anything else I'd have to think a lot harder for. I think that's a great answer and <laughs> a great way to wrap things up. So once no again, thank you so much for your time. I learned a lot, especially about like how it's working internationally now with publishing. So thank you for yeah. sharing with us. Thank you. All I'll right. You, you take All care. Bye-bye. Right. You wash your face in my sink. Simplicity, with synchronicity, makes a mind melt. Revealed, impossible, like a walk through a minefield. Sadly, get up to bat and take a swing. Think, should I? Shouldn't I? Try. Too late. You sunk into the sink that I wash my face. You wash your face in my sink. In my sink. You wash your face in my sink. In my sink. You wash your face in my sink. Tougher. That's what I'm getting. I'm getting rougher. And you beat me. Suffer. The loss of an attempt well tried. Well, your side tried. Thanks once well, again to Spec for being on the show. 
and teaching us so much about what it means to be doing publishing music and making big stars happen out in Dubai. It's amazing all the work he's been doing. And King Lou, capital Q, the two original members of Dream Warriors. We really would love to have you come on the show and uh, we'll do a whole new episode with you. So just give us a shout. All of our social media information will be told at the very end of the show by our good buddy Colin. And we want to hear from you. We want to start talking about what you guys' uh, favorite looks were fashion-wise back in the 90s. Send us your pictures of when you were a kid and all the cool clothes you wore. And like the hyper-color shirts and the cross colors and the sneakers and the backwards pants. Send us all of that. Plus, you can check out our poll on Twitter. It's already posted. Your favorite Dream Warrior song. Vote for it at Nostalgia Dope on Twitter. That's our handle. Next week, I'm going to be talking with Colin and Kendra, our previous guest hosts, and they're going to be back. We're going to do a three-way, ch- not 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 anything but a chat, a three-way chat, <laughs> and talk about MC Hammer's career, folks. MC Hammer, there's so much information about MC Hammer because he was the biggest rap star in the world for time there. Uh, all the advertisements he did, all the sponsorships he had, huge. We'll be talking about him next week. And we've got tons of interviews coming up in the bag in weeks ahead. And I, I don't want to tell you guys yet. You're going to find out. You're going to find out soon. I'm so excited to share them with you. But get in touch with us. All the information to do that is right at the end of the show. And have yourselves a great week. Social media, yeah, we've got it. Send us an email, dopenostalgiapodcast at gmail.com. Twitter, Nostalgia Dope. Or on Insta, dope underscore nostalgia. This podcast is licensed by SoCan because we believe that artists should be paid for their work. Hey, everybody, this is Quinn. And Charlie. And Naomi. We got a podcast together. What's it called? L2L. That stands for learning to listen, because we talk about all kinds of stuff. What do we talk about? Sex. Muppets. Serial killers. Poop. Yeah, you got to be ready for some poop talk if you're going to listen to learning to listen. It's healthy. Hey, you can join in the conversation as well. Uh, You can find us where? Stitcher. Spotify. iTunes. Yeah, you can find us anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Every Tuesday, you can join us and uh, learn to listen. Join us for a little L2L. Yeah, put it in your ear holes. Yeah. Podcasting is so much fun, but it's kind of expensive too. We gotta pay for stuff like licensing fees, hosting fees, long distance phone calls, etc., etc. You get the drill? Okay. Well, we have a new thing called Patreon. Now, Dope Nostalgia has a Patreon account where you can subscribe to premium content. And what that means for you is for the very low starting price of $1 a month, you'll be able to get the podcast two days in advance of the regular release. Not only that, $3 a month, you get exclusive video content just for you guys to check out bonus stuff all the time that you don't get with the regular show. So check it out, patreon.com slash dope nostalgia. Become a subscriber today and get all the good perks.